Hello, America. Well, welcome to The Daily Answer. I'm your host, Mark Dunnigan, and let's talk about when a world ends. When Jesus spoke of the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24, and I know, I know people will read Matthew 24 and are going like, man, these are the signs of the end. A couple of problems with that. First of all, the question that the disciples asked had to do with the destruction of the temple that was then standing. And that temple was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans and has never been rebuilt. The other thing is that in Matthew chapter 24 and in verse 34, Jesus would say, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That verse clearly limits the arrival of the events that Jesus is talking about within the lifetime of that generation. In addition to that, there's a number of statements made in Matthew 24 before that statement that would not make any sense if we're talking about the actual end of the world at the last day. That is when Jesus comes. You have statements like in Matthew chapter 24 where um, where he will say things along the lines of verse 17, uh, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Well, wait a minute. The final judgment includes more than just Judea. And whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in the house. Well, at the final judgment, it's not going to matter where you are physically, whether you're in or outside your house. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, verse 19. Well, that has nothing to do with the second coming. Also, pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Again, no connection with the final judgment there. Clearly, we're talking about an earthly judgment. But there's a reason that the language um, for a fall of a nation and what would sound like the end of the world are similar. And obviously, you will see that in Matthew 24, verse 29. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Yeah, I can see how people are going like, man, that sure sounds like the last, last day. Okay, but remember what we talked about previously, it's time-locked in verse 34. Uh, the statements earlier about, obviously, we're talking about a judgment you could flee from. And the original question, when would the temple be destroyed? But not only that, there's something else, too. In verse 33, so you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Now, Right there, that takes that tells me clearly that what we read about the Son of Man coming on the clouds, the the angels gathering the elect, that that's not their literal, because if it's literal, no one's going to have to tell them, oh, recognize Jesus is here. Well, <laughs> everyone can see Jesus is here. This is a judgment that it would not be clearly recognizable that Jesus had come nigh, and I think what. The Holy Spirit's trying to tell what Jesus and the Holy Spirit are trying to tell these individuals is that when Jerusalem falls, it's not going to be just bad luck. It's not going to be just a chance sort of occurrence. That this is a divine judgment. That this is where God is bringing his wrath upon this city because of their unbelief and rejection of his son. 
that God is specifically involved in this. You might not have seen Jesus actually come literally in the clouds, but he has. And he's the one who has brought Jerusalem down. Now, there's Old Testament precedence for this because if you go back to Isaiah 13, verse 10, this language here, you know, if you have one of those, if you have a translation where it will make things all capital, capitals when it's quoting from the Old Testament, you'll say, well, this is a quote from the Old Testament. And it's a quote concerning the fall of Babylon in the Old Testament. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flush their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Okay, that's the fall of Babylon. And it was not the end of the world, but it was the end of their world. You know, the Old Testament records judgments against various nations. Babylon would be one, Egypt, Edom, man, Assyria. Um, in Daniel chapter 5, we have a record of the last night in Babylon with the last Babylonian king before the Persians take over. And again, to use language that sounds like the end of the world is appropriate for their world was ending. You know, the Bible informs us that a nation can prolong its national existence, its prosperity, by being godly, and it can shorten it, its existence and prosperity and become prematurely old by being ungodly. And Jeremiah 18 is just that classic passage where God says, hey, here's a nation and I had great plans for it, but if they turn from me, I changed my mind about that. They're going down. Or here's a nation and they're very wicked, but they repent like, like the Ninevites in the book of Jonah. They Guess what? They prolong their existence as a nation. I don't bring them down at that point. Like all previous nations, the American people and all present nations, English people, the French, etc., will determine the extent of their prosperity and peace and longevity and freedom by either moral or their immoral behavior. The argument, well, how does my sin hurt you? Oh man, that is so naive. You don't even know. You don't even know how your sin hurts you, not even to mention other people. The typical sinner is oblivious to how their sins are undermining their own character and their own relationships. I didn't know how my sin was hurting me when I was a non-Christian. I was, for the most part, oblivious to that. You see, your sin and my sin tear at the very fabric of our marriages, families, communities, and the nation in which we live. Our sin, all it does, it helps to fill up the cup of divine judgment. Genesis 15, 18 through 19, where Abraham was told, you know, your descendants are not going to get this land right away. You know, four generations they will, because by that time, the, the wickedness of the people in the land will be full and it will be ready for judgment. And that's the whole way the view Joshua's invasion and the fall of Jericho. Basically it is the Canaanite nations had reached a point that they were so wicked and corrupt that the only alternative God had left was to, well, get rid of them. Some feel that Western civilization is coming to the end of something. Again, I say feel, some feel. Feelings can be completely inaccurate, Proverbs 20, 16 and verse 25. And yet, I think some feel this because currently we are seeing everything inverted, world turned upside down in a bad sense. 
the foundations being destroyed and some of the most basic truths or fundamental principles being rejected. It's interesting, in the 1940s, a man by the name of Alexander, and his last name is T-O-Y-N-B-E-E, -E, presented the following observations. He called it characteristics of a society that is disintegrating. Number one, they fall into a sense of abandon. In other words, people stop believing in morality, absolute right and wrong. They yield to their impulses, you might say um, instant gratification, at the expense of their own being. Two, they succumb to truancy, that is escapism, seeking to avoid their problems by retreating into their own worlds of distraction, entertainment, video games would be a good modern example of that. People that want to live in a fantasy world, you know, most bad ideas come from people that don't want to accept reality. Then there is a sense of drift, which people yield to a meaningless determinism. Well, what's going to be is what's going to be. All my efforts will not matter. No matter how hard I try, I'll never be able to own a home. No matter how hard I work, I'll never be able to get ahead. No matter how hard I do this, I'll never be able to save up enough money for retirement. No matter how much I try, my marriage will not hold together. I just have no control over my life or my our lives. Then there's a sense of guilt, self-loathing that comes from their moral abandon. They're disgusted by themselves. They hate themselves. They loathe themselves. They don't like themselves. Then there's promiscuity. And the writer means not so much, but it would include sexual promiscuity, but as the indiscriminate acceptance of anything and everything, an uncritical tolerance, where people are unwilling to say, well, that's wrong, though, or that's disgusting, but you just got everything's accepted. According to the writer, the postmodern age, which most say we're in right now, would be the fourth and final phase of Western history one dominated by anxiety. Man, look at the mental health crisis. Irrationalism. Look how people have rejected truth. The idea there's no truth in history anymore. Uh, they hold contradictory ideas at the same time. And helplessness. There's nothing we can do. Or nothing we can do. He predicted in the 40s that the postmodern age would include the above, plus a time when knowledge is no longer critical, but only functional, when things are no longer viewed from an objective reality or a measuring stick outside of society, like the Bible, like God's absolute truth. There is no position outside of culture to, from which to view culture. And so there's a billion different views of truth. He also said that during the time that the culture collapses, there will be two opposing groups that will emerge. One will be a group from inside the society that doesn't believe in the society anymore, that hates the society, uh, in but not of that civilization. And currently, we do have many people in this country that do not appreciate the freedoms in America, the prosperity in America, and all the sacrifices made by the generations before them so that they could be free. People that want to tear 
down this great country. The second group, though, would be from outside, uncivilized barbarians, war bands, uh, guerrilla-style raids. And as a result of those two forces, like that fifth column from inside that's trying to tear it down, and then what's coming in from the fringes seeking to destroy it, it collapses. Well, I don't want to depress you. <laughs> don't want to make you sad. But I think that was very interesting. Now, in future podcasts, I want to talk about what can the believer do? Because worlds have fallen apart before. I mean, Egypt fell, Babylon fell, Assyrian fell, Persia fell, Rome fell. Uh, other empires of the past have collapsed, okay? And even in relatively modern times, they've collapsed. And they've been there for centuries. Uh, and so God's people in the past have lived through those worlds ending. And the thought would be is, what do God's people do during such a time? And the amazing opportunity that God's people have, if they find that they're living during a time that their current world or civilization changes and moves and transitions into something else. This is Mark Dunnigan for The Daily Answer. Until next time, see you in the funny papers.